Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 13th of September, two days after 9-11. 9-12 went by, and now we're on 9-13, right? <laughs> um, we are going to be putting this show out on 9-14, which is the third day after 9-11. I don't actually have a snarky point that I'm making trying to do all this. I, it sounds I just really hit, snarky. I basically hit the record button earlier than I was ready to do, and now I feel like I have to fill time up, and, I was just, and I'm sick of doing my bit where I don't know what day it is, but, you know, which is not even a bit. I, never, I generally don't know what day it is ever, but... Instead, you get my math that you can, day math that you can interpret however you'd like. Andy, Tammy, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. good. How are you guys? Good to see you guys. We're back. I'm doing okay. You know, I went, uh, my, we took Frankie, my child, to uh, camping this weekend, which was fun. Oh. Yeah. Have you ever been on an, have you ever been on a, a boat with an electric outboard motor? I don't know yes. what that is. You have. <laughs> okay, do you know what an out do you know what an outboard motor is? No. Okay, an outboard motor is a little is a motor that you put on the back of a boat that like makes it go, okay. right? And so they're usually gasoline, right? And so we rented one that was electric. I've never done this before. Oh. It makes no noise. Oh, wow. And it's very nice and the reason why we had to rent an electric one is because this is the reservoir that we we're on. But it go, it goes so slowly that like you like, like a slight headwind will basically stop it. In its You're dress. just floating, basically. <laughs> yeah. So it took us like 50 minutes to go around this little island, you know. And I think the total amount that we traveled is probably like a quarter of a mile. It was like running around a high school track track or something like that. Is it the same kind of electric motor that's now on motor on um like lawnmowers? Like um, that's that must be a little bigger. That's another but... problem. Have you ever used an electric lawnmower? Uh-uh, I've yeah. been seeing them. They they look cool. No? Yeah, I have one, and let me tell you, it does not cut grass. <laughs> that's what I was wondering. <laughs> I know. What's the issue? That they're just it... not powerful enough. Yeah. 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 And look, I don't want to. It's so be much better guy. for the environment and like the smells and stuff. But right, I'm right. like watching my neighbors, Your and I'm neighbors. like, this can't possibly be working. Right. I feel a great affinity with Tim the Toolman Taylor when I'm using it, you know, because it's like it keeps stopping, right? Like because it it's not powerful enough to oh, cut no. through like some parts of grass, oh, and wow. so it just stops. And then you have to like basically put the mower on top of the uh, grass, and then you know, and then start it up, and then yeah. it'll stop again. And then, like, listen, you can write into the show, tell me I'm using the electric mower wrong. But listen, there's not that many ways to use a lawnmower, you know. I refuse. To True. <laughs> Andy, do you have any electric appliances in your house that used that were once in our childhood? Uh, you know, greater American power, uh, <laughs> gas, gas. Power? We drive. We do drive a Prius, uh, which I'm I'm very happy about. Um, that's a nice car. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, it's, well, electric cars are faster generally than you know, like a Tesla is way faster than like a Porsche 911 or something like Prius that. Priuses are not fast. Priuses are not, but that's a high. Yeah. But they're great. Um, that's true. Yeah, I love my Prius. Like, I think the Ford Mustang Mach E, which is like that thing that everyone gets mad about and calls an abomination. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I'm not recording locally. Okay, hopefully this works. Um, the it's, uh, it's, it's a like new a, kind of electric car. Yeah, it's a Ford. It's like a Ford SUV, but they call it the uh, Mach E. 
my god! And uh, so and it's called the Mustang Mach E, which makes everyone super mad because you know they're just like, that's not a Mustang. Yeah, it's not a Mustang. They're right about it's not a it's not a Mustang. Yeah, you know? but the thing is so fast, right? It's like faster than really? a Mustang. Okay. Yeah. Why would electric cars because be so an electric good? Car. Yeah. Why, why would they be so yeah. much better than your uh, lawnmower or your? That's bus? right. Why if they can make an electric yeah, car faster? Than a gas-powered car. Yeah. And why is my lawnmower Where's weaker than Mustang like the Mustang lawnmower? <laughs> yeah. Why is it weaker <laughs> than the Toro lawnmower that I had <laughs> in 1989 when you know, or 1990, whenever my dad first made me cut the grass? Anyway, okay. First topic. Shang Chi. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I'm cracking up at this. Oh my god. Oh no, I'm I'm, good. I'm going back to my roots as as running this like I run the you know as if I was McLaughlin running the McLaughlin. Right. Yeah. First off, <laughs> Shang Chi. Andy, your thoughts Pat, on Shang Chi? Pat, Pat, Pat Buchanan, what is going on? <laughs> Diversity in film is it overrated or underrated? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, Tammy, Tammy Kim, your thoughts on Shang Chi? You you've watched it in Asia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the premise. I'm yeah. Cracking up this week. So it's like we can't talk about this thing no one's seen but me. But here we go. Um, I watched Shang Chi and I thought it was great. I had such a fun time and it was nice to be in a theater. Um, so I haven't watched a lot of the Marvel comic universe films, but this is obviously the first you know Asian or Asian American or Asian diasporic one. Um, I like to sneak in the Ang Lee Hulk in the tabulation of Asian Marvel films because I feel like that sort of counts, even though it doesn't really. Um, I thought, as everybody knows, Simu Liu and Aquafina are the two main stars of Shang-Chi. Aquafina is sort of the sidekick that then becomes like a warrior type. Um, I really thought, so there's a number of things that I admire about the making of this film. First of all, I think it is like another great example of this expanding universe of kind of like transnational Asian cinema, which we've been talking about, you know, on and mm. off. There's every single kind of Chinese Chinese diaspora in this movie. You know, there's like hmm. this, there's like Chinese Americans, there's Chinese British, there's like different kinds of Chinese. And when I say Chinese, I'm really talking like sinospheric people. Right. But, and then there's like fobs and then there's, <laughs> you know, people who are like, you know, first generation and then there's just straight up Chinese people. So I think that's kind of an interesting mix. And I think it also speaks to like the business model that's involved behind these films. Right. Um, I really like the relationship between Simu Liu and Aquafina. It, it remains completely platonic through the film and there isn't really like a love romantic like line in the movie, which I think is kind of refreshing, honestly. Maybe. What is Shang? Who is Shang? Yeah. Shang Chi. <laughs> I don't. I don't know the whole premise. Either. Good basic question. Sorry, we should have started. So Shang Chi is. I assume that everyone who <laughs> listens to this podcast is that of the of I'm... the people of the percentage of people who are involved with this podcast or the people who make the podcast <laughs> or the people who host the podcast that Andy and I are in like this tiny majority of people who have no idea what Shang-Chi yeah. is or have not seen the movie. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I would say in our discord, quite a lot of people have seen it, but. Okay. So who is so Shang-Chi? Shang-Chi is the son of a sort of immortal guy who has become this way and taken over the world on account of 10 rings, 10 magical rings that he wears as kind of bracelets. Mm. And with these rings, he's able to do anything he wants, take over whatever he wants, and he uses it for evil, essentially. That's, and then when he marries, this is Shang-Chi's That's dad. Tony Leung. That's Tony uh, Leung. It was amazing. And he's a, and he's a bad guy then. And he's a bad oh. guy. 
But so it's like Kim Il Sung in some way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Does Kim Il Sung have a lot of jewelry? What are you? No, no, no just you know. I no. feel like he's there's a kind of like Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun type okay. of like characterization early on okay, in the film. Right. Okay. But okay, and then he marries Shang Chi's mom, who's like all good, and she kind of changes Shang Chi's dad to be temporarily good. And okay. he gives up all of this marauding. Is that a famous actress? Then, the mom? Yeah, Fala Chen. Okay. She's like gorgeous in it and like in a kind of like Matrix meets Crouching Tiger type choreography. <laughs> yeah. um, like all of these films. But anyway, and so, but then he turns bad again and Shang-Chi basically is undercover. He is trying to escape his dad's destiny because he doesn't want to be a murderer. But then he gets pulled back in and needs to like rescue the world from his dad. So right. it's a son father son yeah father yeah. kind of like face off type movie yeah yeah that sounds a lot like... so anyway i think you guys should see it i'm not andy 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 look andy come on yeah why have you not watched shang chi <laughs> yeah what's the hesitation? i haven't actually representation in in film matter to you <laughs> i think i'm very hesitant to watch any of these marvel films i just feel like it's yeah, me way too. too much so that's a nice why they're fun though what's the last one you saw andy I think there might have been an X-Men movie in the mid-2000s. But so this like current <laughs> trend like doesn't date back yeah. to the Hulk, right? The Hulk is like late 90s. No. We're talking about this mid-2000s plan by Hollywood to make like a billion of these movies. That's like what we're talking yeah. about, right? So I don't know if it was a plan. I just think it was. Yeah, but you know. But at some point it became like this, like we're not going to make films that resolve themselves. We're going to make like series Right, right. That, it's done. That right yeah. point towards like buying tickets to the next ten films. Right? Totally. Yeah. The last one I saw was Iron Man. Is that the nine eleven movie? <laughs> I don't know. I don't even remember it. I, I remember thinking it was cool. It's like, oh yeah, Robert Downey yeah. Jr. is kind of like talking fast and you know wearing cool suits. I think that like Gwyneth <laughs> Paltrow was like a secretary in that movie is weird. But like, that's right. all I remember. She has that. a very bit role. Anything yet? Oh um, I haven't. Yeah, I I don't have a problem with Marvel movies. I just don't. I just I don't know. I don't. What's the point? Well, I'm curious if this will do well in Asia because that's part of the. I don't know. Part what people say is like Hollywood has become dumbed down because they want to appeal to not that international audiences are dumber, but that language is less of a barrier in action films. So that's why there's been like a trend towards this. And then we we have here the sort of. On the one hand, it's an action film. It also collides with this other thing people talk about, which is do Asian American films do well in Asia? Uh, do, mm-hmm. right? Oh, so that's a Tammy. You're saying it is Asian American, right? Well, yeah, I would say it is primarily, but I really, I mean, it's so many kinds of Asians mixed into this, though, in the cast and the director's Asian American, you know. So I think it's complicated, but I think it has been doing well in Asia. Okay. I don't have the stats in front of me, but yeah, to your point, I think very yeah. much so. Well, it's okay. and it's it's a lot of it's in Mandarin. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So that was some discussion on the Discord, and like people were surprised about that. I mean, what do you think is going on there? Is this is it? You think it's an appeal to, um, like what was the audience's reaction when it was all in Mandarin? People were like, it was it was an issue because like the dialogue was so simple, like it, it was just like 
it wasn't like yeah. a plot driven movie. It was just like, I saw it with six other people in a theater because it was a matinee <laughs> right. and I have no real job. But um, I think like when looking at the reception online, I think it's not that much of an issue, which I think speaks to, which is good, again, yeah. I think there is something kind of changing going on. I'll also say that there's like a scene with Aquafina's family eating breakfast in like San Francisco Chinatown, mm-hmm. which is basically the same as like the scenes of the families eating in the farewell. <laughs> and they're all mixed in like English and Chinese again. And so I think I'm, I'm happy to see those kinds of scenes. Like they're just, it's fun to see those in movies. I don't feel like it's any kind of political thing, but yeah. it just is fun to watch. Okay. 10 minutes is enough for a movie that two of us didn't watch. <laughs> I agree. All right. Moving on. All right. So we, we're going to, I was going to do, I was going to ask Andy something, but I, then I was just like, well, good yeah. Lord. I actually, I don't like, what's the <laughs> point? Andy, hasn't seen, ha- Andy hasn't seen the movie yeah. either, you know? So, um, I will ask Andy about this. And I I have noticed that like 90% of things that are published right now seem to be about like, how should we feel about anti-vaxxers? How should we feel about the vaccine mandates? How should we feel about family? How should we talk to family members who are not vaccinated? How should, if we have <laughs> friends who refuse to get vaccinated, you know, what does it mean about me that I'm starting to dislike them? Right. Like, on and on and on yeah. and on. Now, I am not denigrating this genre of right of uh, peace at all. Really, I think it's actually quite important. The thing that I can't quite get, and I think we should talk about, well, we should talk about two things. We should talk about the mandates in general. But secondly, you know, like, Annie, why do you think that people, that like this has become such a predominant part of the discourse? You know, like, how do we talk to unvaccinated people? You know, how, like, what, what should we think about them? Um, because it's a big problem <laughs> that there are a lot of unvaccinated people. I, I think, I don't know. I mean, uh, what are the numbers like 80, something like 70, 80% of adults are vaccinated. And there's all these, uh, science-based writers who are saying like, this is a problem. It could lead to new mutations. I think the, I think one question is, you know, and, and I think what we want to talk about is like, how, what, to what do we attribute people not getting the vaccine? Is it just a question of persuasion? Like they have all the data, they have right. all the time in the world and they've like walked up to a vaccine center and decided to turn around and walk away, right? Is it, <laughs> is it that simple and voluntaristic? Or, you know, should we think more about like uh, structural things? Like, I don't know, media discourse being uh, really hard to disaggregate, distrust of politicians and corporations or people, maybe they're just don't have the access, don't have the information, um, and so on. And I think, I think it's very easy for someone like in our position to think about like if someone we know who is like a colleague who probably is like very mm-hmm. well educated, has some leisure time per week, no, not, not every day. Um, and they read all the same information we did and did not get the vaccine. We could, we, I think we would get mad about that because we feel like we can relate to this person and we, we chose to get the vaccine and so on. I think it's harder to kind of step beyond that and, and think about like, well, are there people who like, whose like bosses and jobs are not letting them get the vaccine at all? Mm-hmm. Like if not, if not like physically forcing them to, but just making it really, really difficult, right. To find the time to. Tammy, what, what are your thoughts? What about the, are, are there two Americas now, <laughs> you know, and are, that, that's an argument that I've seen a lot, you know, the vaccine is making, is actually defining a new type of biopolitics, right? Yeah. Um, Andy just raised his <laughs> yeah. eyebrows. He's like, ooh, oh, debate. <laughs> a new circle of exception. Um, 
What is it? Is it a zone of exception? No. Uh, it is zone of... No. Zones of homosake. Homo, no, homo I don't it's know. It's not zone or Homosake is zones not. of exception, I think. Yeah. I think it's circles. The zone of distinct and distinction. Circles, state of exception. State of exception. Okay. Are we creating a new state of exception, <laughs> right? Like um, through through all this vaccine, unvaccinated stuff. Yeah. So I think maybe, or can we say that there are three Americas perhaps? So the vaccinated America, the, unvac- the politically unvaccinated America, and the sort of structurally unvaccinated America. And what I might define as what helped a a piece that helped me with the third category was written by Bryce Covert, who covers social issues for the New York times and the nation who wrote an op-ed in the times, like about a month and a week ago, talking about, uh, you know, citing data and studies and some interviews she'd been doing with poor people who are in the service economy, various sectors of the service economy, who for structural reasons at work and based on childcare as well, had not been able to get vaccinated yet, but Mm -hmm. didn't have any political opposition to it. So I wonder if that, but in I think she suggests in the essay that, you know, the numbers aren't super clear, but that the politically unvaccinated are certainly not the majority of the unvaccinated. And I don't, but I don't know what, you know, I think it it seems to me, I haven't seen any clear numbers on that. So it, you know, I don't know exactly how to feel about that. And I also want to say that, like, I think even though we need to obviously respect the conditions of what poor and working class people are dealing with, like poor and working class people also have volition and you know also we need to be able to say that they have a responsibility you know to yeah do what they can to get vaccinated and so i yeah i think like i feel like on the left there's this thing where it's we're obviously mad at the politically unvaccinated but everybody who's kind of poor and working class gets a pass also and i don't i would i would say like i'm not necessarily all like with that like i want to recognize the structural barriers but i also think that we need to figure out a way to pull everybody in to be able to get a vaccine yeah especially if those people get me manage to get measles and smallpox vaccines right yeah like that's a baseline that you can make a comparison to breaking news Nicki minaj just tweeted they want you to get vaccinated (laughs) for the met if i get vaccinated it won't be for the met uh It'll be once I feel like I've done enough research. I'm working on that now. Nicki oh Minaj. God. What's the met? So is she politically unvaccinated? Seriously? Yeah. I only saw that because someone just texted it to me. Uh, that is bizarre. Yeah. Has she spoken out about the vaccines before? I guess not. Oh I mean, God. I don't know. I guess Mickey, you know, Nicki Minaj doesn't trust the government. I don't yeah. know. It's too bad. Very talented. Ray, Ray Allen yeah. tweeted he got the vaccine. Uh, after doing his research, it was like a PSA, but it was like in the middle of summer. <laughs> I was like, Ray Allen, what? Like, very famous, well, very famous yeah, NBA yeah, player. I mean, Took him a long time. Yeah. Huh. I, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel a couple ways about this. The first is that I feel like, uh, Tammy, I agree with you. I think that there's a little bit too much of coddling of people right now. And that I think it's very abstract, which is what bothers mm-hmm. me, right? Like where it's just like, oh, well, some people can't do X, right? And so, you know, I've done some reporting and research on this and I've talked to some people around here. Yeah. And they said that, look, of the people who are, like, there's really not that much access problem, right? Mm. And this is, I'm talking here about like yeah, a very in wealthy the, in the Bay. metropolitan area and which does have pockets of extremely poor people, right? But even within the pockets of extremely poor people, there is not really an accessibility pe- problem. And this is from people who like, you know, to both go out and, 
do the vaccines and get people vaccinated, but also are very sympathetic to the idea that there are access problems about things, right? This just doesn't happen to be one of them. Now, they say that basically the one place where you can see it is that there's a lot of sort of day laborers, for example, right, who um, mm-hmm. they just don't want to get sick for a day, right, because they think that they'll it'll make it difficult for them to continue work, mm-hmm. right? And okay. so that's like they say it's hard for us to keep going. And at this point here, they have stuff like, you know, uh, Spanish language outreach and, you know, pop-ups and all the sorts of things that people write about that help access, which do help access, mm-hmm. right? But even within there, there's still a resistant group. The only people who are just like, well, I'm working too much and I don't have time for it. It's sort of that population. It's not yeah. a particularly large population, right? And so I think we can say that within that population that perhaps the government should, you know, A, call off the hounds of ice, right? Because that tends <laughs> yeah. to be the, the, uh, yeah. the day labor population and B, that they should, you know, allow these, like give people like two days off to get vaccinated and replace their salary. And that would, that would solve that. It's still a tiny population here that is like that right by all accounts so um who is the rest of it you know i look yeah. at it all the time and i'm like all right berkeley has 70 percent vaccinated population <laughs> you know i'm just like who who are these people 70 <laughs> 70 for adults or 70 total 70 total right so like uh 85 yeah, okay. total or something for, like that and for adults like, yeah this who are these adults yeah. you know <laughs> Right. And I don't think that they're, you know, they're not workers who are like have to punch in 80 hours a week and they can't take a day off to, right? Like these are, and I I guess I feel a few ways about it. The first is that like, I don't get too mad about people about, for, about uh, people about this sort of stuff because, you know, I don't really get that mad about people. At at any of the groups? Yeah. Like it doesn't, like, it's like, it's all the same to me, I guess. And I don't know why, but like, you know, so, for example, like a woman around here, or a man around here, who has a lot of crystals in their in their house, right? <laughs> or like, or like a, some dude who, like, uh, you know, is conspiratorial at this point because they burned out in the seventies and sort of ended up like in the space. Like, that's going to be a large portion of the unvaccinated around here. I know these people. I see them walking around. You know. And- <laughs> <laughs> And I just like that. I think is the least. Would you say that's probably the least sympathetic? Yeah, I was gonna say of all yeah. the people, right? And I, you know, it. I I do get kind of a little mad at them, but like I don't know. Like it's like. Uh, like Why do don't agree. you get madder at them? Because as you say, they are not sympathetic at all. Um, I don't know because I think that like people are. Uh, I just have a very hard, I, I feel bad for them because I think that they genuinely don't think they have enough information to make these types of decisions, hmm. you know, and I don't know why they feel that way, but, um, you know, I, I, I sort of sympathize with the idea that like people feel confused during this time yeah. and distrustful of the government hmm. and, um, and yeah, so even those people who I would say are the least sympathetic of all anti-vaxxers. <laughs> are they white you know, like, in Berkeley? Are these people white uh, in Berkeley or are they different races? Yeah, I think it's probably spread out a little bit, but mostly white. Yeah. They find that that the that the woman who is running the biggest anti-vax site on Facebook, like this huge anti-vax oh, site, is from Piedmont, California. Piedmont is like 
the rich is like this wow. little island in the middle of Oakland that's only for rich people. Like they, you know, it's one of these sundown places where basically it's just like let's make our own town, you know, oh and that way we could segregate everything, no. you know. Um, yeah, she's from Piedmont. You know, average house price in Piedmont is probably like three point five million dollars or something like that. Wow. So, yeah, she's not very sympathetic. <laughs> anyway, I'm rambling. I mean, um, I feel like the it's it's distrust of government. It's distrust of big pharma. You know. Um, which yeah. I think is seen as tied together and, you know, fair point. Like, why is it privatized and why is like, why is there no patent on the vaccine and why is this making so much profits for two private corporations? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also just kind of think about uh, there's just, there've been like all sorts of, uh, I don't know how like accurate any of this stuff is, but all sorts of like different sort of like medical humanities, social science related types, researchers talking about how, if you think about this in a more global perspective, the United States or the United States kind of falls into the category of countries that have suffered from like political polarization and uh, which is like correlates with like income inequality and all this stuff. Whereas countries that have more like sense of social cohesion, trust in government and so on, they've done better. And it's hard not to think about this. Uh, this doesn't really answer the question of like whether or not to feel sympathetic. This is hard not to think about like the United States is in many ways like um, the government is kind of like uh, seeing the consequences of like the last, you know, several decades of yeah. all this polarization stuff that's, that's been around us, you know, for several decades at this point. And then also we have to, and then like, what are the deeper roots of polarization and why do people distrust both parties? Why do both parties like, make everything political and um you know if i was like andy i have a question for you like just i don't mean to cut you off i just want to ask you do you believe in this whole polarization narrative the i believe that stuff gets politicized in a stupid way in this country do you think that we are unusually polarized at this point in american history uh about everything I, i do okay yeah, me too. <laughs> I didn't want to believe it because I just didn't, you know, it was such like a big narrative. Sure. And I was just like, I wanted to be skeptical about it, just, you know, out of some, well, you know, impulse. But I was just like, yeah, we're probably pretty. Poor. I was thinking about it because I was like, remember, Andy, you're too young, but Tammy, do you remember like the Ross Perot? I, I remember Ross Perot. Perot. Andy, come on. How old are you in Ross Perot? I think I voted for him in our fourth grade election because uh, I. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, I wanted to be different. Aww. Of course, I think I did too. Andrew. I wanted to be different from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm almost. You know what? So I don't. I, I'm going to come out and I'm going to just say I don't think I voted for Ross Perot <laughs> in whatever whatever election, great election. I was not old enough to vote back then, but I am positive I voted for Ross Perot. Yeah, because like I remember it clearly. Like, fuck these guys, just, like, right? Fuck Bush yeah, and Clinton. Like, I don't want yeah. two. I don't want two parties. You know. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is coming out with his tr- anyway do He's you so remember original. that tammy yeah tammy, do you remember that okay now the idea that like a ross pro could come out and like do his charts and you know talk about you know and sort of still be part of the political conversation there's no way right like that's uh that was trump and he won the election <laughs> No, no. Trump, <laughs> Trump and Ross Perot are totally different. Ross Perot was like trying to sell himself as like the reasonable one, you know. Mm, but he was basically um, a libertarian, wasn't he? I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't really remember the yeah, but that's policy. Well, but do you just? But yeah, he was like, I'm the out, I'm the total. But Andy, do you just mean like Trump because he was saying I am a Republican, but I'm really just an outsider? Yeah, Trump's whole thing was you can't I'm trust you can't trust both parties. I'm a pri- yeah. I, I'm privately no, no. wealthy. I thought that was Ross Perot's oh. whole deal too. No. 
kind of. No, but Ross Perot is more like, this is how the economy works. Right. You know, I'm going to show you by yeah. these, With these charts. charts. <laughs> and <laughs> it was all about the charts. <laughs> That's his distinguishing feature. <laughs> oh, no. I feel like the Ross, I feel like American television, you know, up until 9 11 had a few defining moments, you know, Challenger blowing up. And then I think that Ross Perot's infomercials have to be up there you know it was like so snl yeah so and the snl sketches were good with dana carvey yeah. but i think like the reason you're hesitant with the polarization stuff is because the critique of polarization comes from a pretty like in my opinion like pretty conservative place of like if only we banded together and underneath right. the flag as we used to a century which is like what we yeah. like which is anathema to us but i well and it's a, it seems a bit ahistorical right if you actually think about the slavery era or sure, they did have a civil other war other big fights in history where it was like <laughs> they did have a civil there war was other yeah. kinds of polarization but but yeah there's a very specific <laughs> right. kind of polarization right now i think happening and, um okay and, yeah and, and I, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off tammy what do you think no. do you think uh do you think this vaccine stuff is just like evidence of polarization do you think it's driven by that or do you think that there's legitimately a, some portion of the adult population that does you know that outside of political that doesn't think of it as a politicized thing you know that does think it's need there needs to be more research done because i don't know you know i don't know that many people who are anti-vax but i do know a few right yeah and they're not republicans right like they're not people who are politically driven that way like one of them is a hippie you know but like (laughs) it's not um i don't you know i do think that the people i know at least are not hesitant. They're just he- and then the ones who aren't, who you would say are being political about it, like people who got that news from Fox News or whatever. Yeah. Like I don't think they really think about it as a political thing. I just think that they get all their news from Fox News, you know. And I think that's slightly different, right? Like they 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 sort of hear a lot more doubt than you or I might in our, you know, um, NPR to New York Times to Twitter. <laughs> News pipeline, yeah. I mean, yours, not mine, <laughs> right? <laughs> I feel so seen. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't, well, I mean, then are you just defining political, like electorally political, basically? I mean, because I think it's kind of, I guess we're talking about, yes, it's like political in terms of the Republicans and Democrats, but it's also about a relationship to power, a relationship to the government, what you, th- what role you think government should play in your life. Yeah. Right. You know, and in that sense, I think it's, it's very political for all these people. I mean, I guess the people I know who don't want to get vaccinated, who have yet as yet refused to be vaccinated are people who mostly don't trust the medical establishment because of its history mm-hmm. against marginalized groups. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I consider that a political decision and I think that they, that's also consistent with what I know about their relationship to the government, you know, and it's very sad. I was thinking this week, I I think I sent you guys this link to, I've been seeing a lot of movies, um, this Hobbs, Eric Hobbsbaum documentary. And he says something in the documentary that I found so chilling and prescient, which was basically in the sixties and seventies, he, sorry, in the eighties, he, he basically made a prediction that, after the sort of good period that we all, you know, fantasize about in the West of this like post-war stability, that the the brisk rise of like oligarchy and transnational capitalism that came up right after that would lead to basically what we see now, like a world of mass polarization of essentially like fascism and nationalisms abounding. And that basically this, what we're talking about now, he had, he would sort of place into that. And so I think maybe we can think about that as a kind of 
the polarization we're talking about, which is like yeah. this particular condition of like late capitalists, like inequ- mass inequality and this divergence that leads people to feel so alienated from the government and sort of collectiv- collectivity, yeah. you know, because they only see them in a bad way doing bad. Um, it's heartbreaking. You know? Yeah, I think you're right that the, you know, the 20th century, the golden age was a exception. It was a blip. And then most of history is yeah. probably like this. And so if, you know, when COVID, if COVID had happened in the mid 19th century, there would also be the same distrust of government. Um, yeah, exactly. But it would be nice if we were back in the 60s and 50s right now. And we had the sort Wouldn't of it? faith in JFK <laughs> and yeah. LBJ to get this done. Um, yeah. I don't, yeah. Unless you're Asian stuck in a right. war, but yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they would like getting bombs strapped on your head. Yeah. Andy, what about them? <laughs> yeah, Andy. Someone on our street just put up the uh, 13 Colony Philadelphia flag, and I'm like, wow. I mean, part of me is like, is that wrong? yeah, that's the thing. I'm like, is it? Wrong? I don't know slavery, but you know, like, what do they mean? But it's just, it's like, just, all, it's all are? over the city. It's all over the city. I, yeah. I, you know, it's like, you know, some. I, I think I probably know who it is, and they're just like a Philadelphian. They're not. I don't think they're racist, you know, but. I mean, they're white, but you know, like Colin Kaepernick, <laughs> so the one weird. political statement that he's made in the last two years was after he signed his Nike deal, not the one, but like the most sort of one that got the most attention was like that Nike after, right after they signed him sent, I think they made a pair of sneakers with that, with that flag on it, Andy. And he was like, right. Yeah. 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 Right. right. So mm-hmm. I should tell him about Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. It's hard, but then <laughs> you live in this, you live in like the entire Northeast it's like, oh, I guess probably the east of the Mississippi. Everything is about the era of slavery. And so I don't know. It's, I don't know yeah, how people here deal with it true. or who grew up here deal with it. I'm just sort of like, you know, cognitive dissonance. I just try to not think about it. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You're, you're doing like the, you're doing the, the history version of no speaking English, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. They're like. Hey, hey, Andy, what oh do you gosh. think about the Liberty Bell? Don't speak or English. You know, like, Andy, you know, what do you think about this flag? Uh, don't speak or English. Uh, your, your, your history means nothing to me. You know, I know about, I know about the Lao Tzu. I know about How do you... the Wang Wei. Oh, my God. Did Jake practice for today? That's hysterical. Oh, no, listen. I have a variety of racist yeah. Asian accents that so I can good. break out. I can't actually have a racist Stays in accent. <laughs> yeah, you're too well. No, I just can't. Like, <laughs> we have to get you drunk. And then... I, uh, but you did pronounce an L for Lao Tzu, so it's loud. It's inconsistent <laughs> to drop it for the English. Lao Tzu? There's no L in Lao Tzu. No, the, no, but you said English, so you could say L. Oh, English. Route. Well, you can't port it over. <laughs> yeah. Because so, Korean, Korean has an L, doesn't it? Kind of. Oh, no. When you put it's, two the L and R together, is the same thing. But you can yeah. if it the sound is there if you. Yeah, I think it's, it's a yeah. Japanese, and it's some it's of a, it gets transposed. So for it's a example, Japanese racist thing, I think not Chinese. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, like so for ramen, right? In Korean is ramen, right? And that comes right? from the Nam-yan. Chinese namyeon. But like Lam-yan. in a word like, but they'll say like or something. There's like basically there are certain combinations right. of consonants where the L is produced. And then there's that surname Lee E Ri. Yeah, which is all the same. Yeah. The same in Chinese. <laughs> no, I just, is it the same? No, no, no. I was saying Korean. Korean Americans spell it three different ways. Oh my right. god, we're way off course <laughs> yeah. here. We're supposed to be talking about that. 
Namyan. <laughs> I know that, but you know, I. I but it sounds. It, how does it's it sound? ramen, right? It, isn't it's ramen. Like it's of it's pulled noodles. It's the same in Chinese uh, yeah. and Japanese. <laughs> Got it. Right. Anyway, okay. Um, so, yeah. Back to our. We have two more things that I want to talk about, here, <laughs> which is that. Um, oh, man. Okay. Um. This summer, there was like this, uh, this, uh, this, this report that came out, and it was that said that compared to those who have received COVID nineteen vaccine, unvaccinated adults are younger, less educated, more likely to be Republicans, people of color, and uninsured. Now, it seems like the way that plays that this is breaking down is something that you know, like I don't know, like David Shore talks about a lot, or like Dylan Matthews talks about a lot, right? Which is that the real divide in America and the real polarization in America is less so, less so on lines of edu- of uh i'm sorry less on lines of race or class mm-hmm. it's like basically just lines of who has a college education who doesn't have a college education the data that they bring to bear on this is actually quite convincing like i, I don't know how you could argue that it's not you know like there's clearly some sort of divide between college educated non-college educated people that isn't just an arbitrary like cleave to like create data points right like i think that this is a real thing do you do you um and that i do think that the pandemic is more or less showing that this is true, right? It's also something that is bringing this out as a symptom. Tammy, what do you think about this? Like, do you, do you think there is a divide in America, that the real divide in America is between college-educated people and non-college-educated people? Sure. <laughs> I guess I'll say that I find some of that, I think I find some of that argument somewhat convincing. And I think like a few months ago, we talked about this Helen Epstein article, which was looking at like non-college-educated whites you know, in terms of like this rhetoric around like the white working class, who are these people? Who are the people who are dying of opioid overdoses, et cetera, et cetera? And so, in those studies, that that is very convincing. But I so what I what I I bring that up because I find the college educated versus non educated distinction most helpful when it's actually applied within a single racial group. Okay. But yes. Um. But anyway, it's just very bizarre because they're more likely to be Republicans and people of color, but Republicans are like the whitest of the two parties. So it's kind of hard to square that. I guess education yeah. could be the uh, access, whatever, right? That or whatever the the third, the third yeah, thing. Well, that's what right? I mean. Yeah. The, the triangulation like, is it just about college education. Yeah, not, I mean, you know. Those numbers are changing a little bit. I don't know if they're going to narrow. Like the the same study, I think it's Kaiser Family Foundation came out with a report last week that said like the black and Hispanic vaccination rates are increasing the most. Now they're still much far behind white right. and Asian, right. but mm-hmm. you know, it's like um, the stuff could change quickly, but I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. It has changed. It has changed quite a right. bit. And it, yeah, you're yeah. right. And it should be said that, um, and I think the difference between white and black vaccination rate is basically 10%. Yeah. yeah. And um, the number of white people who are unvaccinated is much higher than the difference between white and black people who are vaccinated, right? Like this is mm-hmm. one of the sort of fallacies. Right, right, right. I think that people An absolute numbers, right? Yeah. Right. Like they're just sort of being like, well, look at this percentage versus this very, you know, somewhat tellingly, I just, you know, this is what I just wrote about in terms of the SAT. So I'm, you know, somewhat doubling, not doubling down, doubling back on <laughs> some <of that> stuff. <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't know. Um, you should say I, what you argued there. Oh, I argue, look, I don't, my argument is essentially about the SAT and stuff like this. I guess that people who listen to the show would be, have some familiar with the stuff that I'm writing is that 
I think that like basically we should make college admissions as transparent as possible. And if it's a state school, then it should just be automatic admission if you're above a certain threshold, right? And that if you don't make that threshold, you go to community college. If you make it through two years of community college, you can transfer into the four-year school, right? And that the vast majority of people should do that second option, right? Because like it's cheaper, it's better. You get to stay at home. You get to stay in your community. You get to figure out what you're going to do. It's, It's similar to you know, Quebec, I think, has a similar system of education there. And that by all this sort of like tiny little adjusting around the, and it's not tiny. I mean, getting rid of the SAT and and ACT in California is a huge deal, Mm -hmm. you know? Like there's a lot, it's not, I don't care about the test prep industry. I care about like families who are basically spent their lives trying to prepare for this one thing that would help them, their kids like get a, any sort of sense of upward mobility in like a system that is rigged against them. Right. And that, that that's not just Asian parents. It's, you know, black parents, it's black yeah. immigrant parents, it's Latino families, you know, very, very much Latino families here. And uh, I think just changing it to and just sort of celebrating that UCLA went from 6% black to 7% black. I don't know. And then at the same yeah. time, UCLA's admissions rate went from 14% to 10%. It's kind of messed up to me, you know, that's what I'm arguing. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but regardless of that, yeah, I do think that even if you look at numbers and percentages like that, right, that you shouldn't really just sort of right. sound the alarm, right. right, and just say like, oh, black people are less vaccinated than white people. What's going on? Right. Yeah. You know, it's just like, no, there's still a ton of white people. <laughs> the majority of unvaccinated more. people are white. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so you should yeah. think about it that way. Um, and that the difference of, yes, I do think that there is some questions about what is why black vaccination rates are low, but I don't think that they're actually the most important questions, right? And the people who try and make them the most important questions, yeah. I think are always trying to make uh, that question the most important question, you know? Um, and I don't know. I'm not as interested in that. Right, uh, yeah. Tammy, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, I'm sure it's concerning among people who are looking at racial justice, like looking at this from a racial justice perspective, though, because obviously there were so many Black people who were disproportionately, I mean, we've talked about proportionality on the show as well, but, um, you know, who did die so in early on in the pandemic. And so I'm sure people who are in public health are, are thinking about, well, we spent so much time and attention trying to figure out why it was that so many Black people were dying early on in the pandemic. And if Black people are not being vaccinated at the rates they should be right now, like that's concerning. But yeah, is there, are those sort of one-to-one, like which Black populations are we talking about? I think it's, it's just, right. it still seems unclear. Yeah. Um, uh, Andy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, those numbers are so, like you said, they're so, we're talking about like 45, 40, 50. It's like that. Yeah. It's hard to say like this is the statistic. This is like, or this mm-hmm. is the uh, category, the, the category that explains differences. It's more like, well, there's there's other things that happen, and uh, the overall numbers are caught, kind of all falling within the same range. Uh, that's predictable, right. and then you get into like, you know, as a, a lot of southern states are really bad with this, and a lot of southern states have big black populations, and a lot of white states in the northeast are doing really well, um, and that's just like not like racially motivated you know it's just like demographically how it works i i don't know you know there's also part of me that thinks you know this is after spending like basically the last two weeks looking at sat data and sat studies and i think that there's something about the way in which every single number now gets disaggregated by race that i think is actually contributing to like a lot of like sort of pop yeah. sociological yeah um trends now you might look at for not you tammy or andy but one might look at 
the vaccination rates, right? And say, wow, Asians are doing best. White people are second, <laughs> Hispanics are third, and black people are fourth, you know? What else is like that? Oh, the SAT is also <laughs> like that, you know? Like, and then say, what's going on, right? Like, so oh <laughs> I, I don't know. There's like, there's like data symmetry is such an alluring yeah. thing right yeah. now, right? And it's because we're basically all of social media has like uh, conversations at a certain level have now been run by economists, which totally. is true, I think. You know, yeah. like, I think this is a thing that has happened. Mm-hmm. Or like pollster types. Yeah. yeah it's not even economists. Right, 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 yeah. right. Who are just economists, <laughs> you know? Well, they're, they're, they're economists they? wannabes, but very few more are actually economists. I think a lot of them are just like okay the use, the use i don't mean to uh, yeah i'm not meaning to impugn the great the, i don't mean to make that type of comparison but, but you know like i anyway it brings us to our set this is an amazing segue by the way it brings us to our second topic which is about you know real geneticist right and um it brings back a question that we were just talking about which is like uh if we believe that there are genetic differences between people right like if we sort of not reject even the idea of tabula rasa, right? Like if we just say that obviously there are genetic differences between people when it comes to everything, right? Um, Andy, for example, is taller than me, right? Um, And uh, do we then have to immediately then conclude that there are intelligence differences between race, right? Now, this is not necessarily what uh, Gideon's article or Paige Harden's work was about, but it sort of was about that, right? Like yeah. it was about like what Sandy Darity, who is a, a black professor at Duke, how he responded to Paige Harden's yeah. work, which is essentially just being like, this is just going down the same road to eugenics that everything runs right now. Um, I, I reminded me of this. I became very interested in this in a very similar way when David Reich, who is a sort of, um, who is at Harvard, who deals with ancient DNA, Right. Which is like sort of the admixture that human beings have of like different prehistoric species. Right. So this is like why you see all the racists online being like, we're two percent Neanderthal and four percent Denisovan. Our brain capacity is like a sixteen hundred cc's. And like, you know, that was something that David Reich, when he came out with his research and he wrote a book, he wrote an op ed in the New York Times. And the entire op ed was basically like, don't make this racist, Mm -hmm. you know? And of course, like the reason why he has to do that is because he knows that everyone is going to make it racist, right? Like, because he's essentially arguing that different populations do exist, right? Um, Sub-Saharan Africa might be one population, right? The steppe people of Europe, which ironically is just the Aryans, I guess, (laughs) are like one group, right? And then he's saying that it is logical to conclude or the evidence shows that there are differences between these groups right like that would be passed down through thousands of generations now because of charles murray and because of you know and because not just because charles murray just because of the history of eugenics um starting in the 1920s when like it was totally normalized right all these conversations inevitably do go towards race and intelligence right and so i don't know i think it's a fascinating thing um because like uh i don't I kind of agree with the types of people who are out there saying like, we're not going to stop this and this type of science coming Mm -hmm. out. And so like by just pretending it doesn't exist, we're going to basically not be prepared to talk about it. I do find that somewhat convincing. And yet at the same time, I also find convincing the idea, this has always led to eugenics, you know, and the veneer of science doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. in the 1920s, 1930s, the entire 
eugenics conversation was printed in the Atlantic Monthly every single month. You know, like it was seen as completely legitimate science. Right. And a lot of that influenced what Hitler did. And so um, I don't know. I think it's a really fascinating topic and worth discussing. You know, I think that's why Gideon, for example, is so interested in Gideon is a very good journalist that sort of digs into some of these things that are really uncomfortable for people to talk about. So what do you guys think? Well, can I ask? I don't know this guy, David Reich's work. Like what? in that op-ed then did he say is his sort of purpose or like in, in other words does he see his work just as like he's a scientist doing science which has like is apolitical or is there a political program that he wants us his work to point towards that's not just eugenics obviously oh i think it's the former right so he is like well isn't it interesting to know that if you look at the people who perhaps built stonehenge right that mm-hmm. they share the same similar D de- I, I don't know if this is true, but like basically they came from Russia and you can tell this by looking at ancient bones that are found around there. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can look at the percentage of uh, X species that are there yeah. through this work. He also found that there are like different types of hom- early hominids that we didn't even know existed before, which is obviously important to science in okay. some way that, you know, I guess it's important. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I think we have an it's answer cool to that. To yeah, exactly. It's cool to right. know we want. To, but I, I, my guess is that there's something else, you know, and I think that's part of what Gideon's oh, doing. Oh, for him. For him. And for... I don't think... No, I mean... I, I mean, you know, I also like, don't, obviously don't believe in pure science for science's sake, right? right and all right. that. But, but I'm just curious, because I think that's what's interesting about Gideon's piece. He's trying to give Paige Harden her best shot at like, well, what is it then? Yeah. You know, and she comes back with a sort of like social democratic program of, well, if we accept the fact that there are genetic differences that lead people to have different outcomes, you know, in our material universe, then that should point us towards a social democratic program because we can't just rely on everyone getting the same opportunity and then having the same success. Right? Yeah, right, right. Um, she, I don't she... I don't necessarily buy that line from her, but I think Gideon's giving her the best shot at it. You know, right, and so that's why I was asking about David. For the people who haven't read the article, which is good, I should clarify that. Yeah, sorry. Right? Like she, no, 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 no. It's just good to point out that like her, she is framing this all from like the progressive case for genetic research, right? Um, and that we need to figure these things out, um, and that that we shouldn't think about it in terms of race, right? We should just think about it in terms of that people have different genetic. Uh, what parts of our outcomes are genetically coded from birth. And I think that she and a lot of people who would agree with her say like, look, this is how people actually think about things. You know, most people believe that genes have a strong determinative effect. Right. And, you know, even before the term genes was created, people thought that like who your parents were mattered. Right. And it was like, Oh, you got this from his daddy or whatever. You got this from his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we, that basically the complete reticence, to discuss this ever is leading to harmful sort of like bulges almost in terms of discourse that where everybody is afraid to say the thing that they're saying and then things go haywire from there. Andy, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> listening to Tammy's um, political, the way she kind of framed her politics, I, 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 I wonder what is added to the, to the, like, let's say a social democratic universalist political program. What is added to it by, putting in the line about genes and genetic, whatever, if the whole, if you, you can, you can make the argument that everyone should be guaranteed, you know, full employment, social welfare, whatever, right. So safety net without the genetic argument. I think, I think I, you know, we all say that all the time. None of us really traffics in the gene stuff. 
I think the flip side is reading this made me think a lot about, you know, I mentioned this uh, several times on the podcast, Barbara Fields' arguments about race. She, I, I, so I can tell a story. I, I remember I taught Barbara Fields' essay about like, you know, the history of race and how it's not, you know, it was like historically created. I remember the first time I taught it, I got a lot of resistance, um, kind of assuming like I wouldn't get resistance because like, I assume like everyone in the 21st century, if they don't, even if they don't understand the argument, they're just like nodding along. Yes, yes. Race is constructed and so on. <laughs> um, yeah. And I got a lot of resistance, A, yes, from conservative students, but also from students who I think were just totally well-intentioned, but were like science students, were in like chemistry or biology majors. Yeah. And their basic response is like, you know, like, so like Barbara Fields would debunk the idea of like black diseases and Jewish diseases, like sickle cell and whatever. And, right, and they right. were, and the student would be like, but this is just what we're taught, you know, that you can, that you can think about genetics mm. and think about genetic predisposition in these categories. And, and, you know, not being in a science, not having a science background, not being in that discourse, I'm always kind of wary about like making generalizations, but it does seem like there, there is a real uncritical lack of critical discussion about not so the, I think there's a there's a gap between as Jay kind of pointed out there's a wide acceptance like DNA is real genetics are real hereditability is real like of course it's real and right and yeah. race right and there's a huge difference between those two and one thing I kept feeling when I was reading this article was like will the author or or the you know Hart Professor Hardin will they ever address that gap because that seems to be what's at stake, right? Can we conflate those two? And obviously, Darity and critics are kind of worried that the conversation about Gen X becomes a conversation that legitimizes race when yeah. it doesn't have to be. You can obviously you can talk about like my daughter, you know, got this and this for me, and I got this and this for my parents, and but right. that's not the same thing as saying we have Chinese genes, you know, uh, because because <laughs> because China is not a scientific category; it's like a historical one, um, and and that and that's like that's the big. That's the to me like that's the that's where everything gets messed up when mm-hmm. people jump from scientific empirical research to like and then taking like political categories or linguistic categories or however people divide race right which is like they do it by language they do it by geography they do it by skin color and they're all inconsistent and logically inconsistent but they get naturalized they got naturalized I think in medical discourses a long time ago and even to the 21st yeah. century they get passed down that way. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't want to like lecture scientists on med- and doctors how to do their job, but it does seem like that's that, you know, anecdotally you hear, like they still teach these things like Jewish diseases, black well, diseases. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to, to lecture that. Some... Yeah. <laughs> well, no, because I think if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that, you know, a lot of scientists have a real problem communicating with the public. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, po- and generally people like blame the public. It's not the public's fault that they can't decipher like a bunch of charts and like, uh, you know, like sort of academic discourse around science. Right. And um, I don't know, Andy, do you think that it's inevitable that people are going to make that jump, though? Because I think that's a question at the center of all of this. Yeah. Like, are they going to basically say it's genetic? And the reason why I was interested in it is because obviously, you know, the same thing happens in terms of achievement gaps. Right. Mm Like, uh, like in terms of education, which is that at some point people are just like, oh, it's genetic, yeah. you know, like there's nothing or they say, oh, it's cultural. Yeah. Right. And that at, outside of that, the explanation is like, oh, well, it's systemic racism. Right. Which is just as vague. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think people seem like they need one explanation as opposed to uh, 
an explanation that is basically like, listen, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, these schools were segregated by law, you know, and um, one school was much, 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 much less funded than the other school. Not even that funding matters. Like one group was terrorized by yeah, yeah. Know, <laughs> by the majority public and that um, and that that is going to have lasting generational effects and that we can't quite quantify how those worked out because people are complicated. Right. But we also know that like they find themselves through economic, you know, economic, not bans, but like, you know, class people are poorer than other people. People have different access to nutrition, all that sort of yeah. stuff. That's like hard, I think, you know, like it's hard for people to accept. And so it's just like the people's brain. Like, I think that a lot of people's brains in America just want to jump towards those types of racial right. uh, explanation, which is why, I, you know, I do find myself somewhat sympathizing with what Darity says in this article or what he emailed sure. at that yeah. point. Okay, so Tammy, you're much more on the Darity side, or you're on the Darity side. I am. Pre- right, I so found myself more on the Darity right. side, although I, I found Hardin to be compel- a compelling character. But right. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason why I felt sympathetic with Darity was because, so just like on a very micro level, like basically Paige Hardin had had you know come to this research foundation that. Darity was also a fellow at and they had these sort of fellow roundtables and Hardin was kind of emailing about her work. And at the time she was collaborating, I think, on a study that looked at a certain population of like northern European descendant people of a certain socioeconomic group and then were doing genetic studies to understand their social outcomes on them. And Darity is basically saying, like, I'm very skeptical of any kind of any kind of this sort of behavioral genetics work because it always leads to eugenics. Yeah. You know, and I think like historically, that's like basically factual. And also, and it just seems like anytime these behavioral genetics people <clears throat> do their research, I mean, as Andy was saying, like, yeah, there's a difference between like individual or even familial genetics and kind of like race, like that's a big jump. But once you get beyond the sort of family category and you do quote unquote population research, it almost always yeah. seems to be a racial study. Mm-hmm. So I think like, how do you get around that? Well, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how, how behavioral genetics are. Are there other kinds of like behavioral genetics research that don't always like yeah. essentially insert race into the population st- group? Because it always seems to be that way. Yeah. I mean, I'll be curious after reading this review, like, uh, I don't know if I'll buy Hardin's book. Might we flip through it just to see like, what are her categories? Because yeah, if, her, if her categories remain just kind of racial ones or just population demographic ones, then I think the criticism still applies, you know, that no matter how how much you tack on socially progressive messaging or whatever, like you are still naturalizing this idea that certain groups have genetic this or that. And, you know, none of those, you know, like uh, I, the way, I, I mean, the way I kind of think about it in my head is, and I know this is probably not scientifically right at all, but like genetics, heritability, like this stuff is real. Think of it almost like a Jackson Pollock painting, right? Where there's like, there's kind of this chaos, but you can actually like trace the lines from here to here. And then what Rice does is like when you take like a big black Sharpie and start drawing circles in that Pollock <laughs> painting and it's kind of making right. arbitrary yeah. assumptions about how everything in this circle is of one race and everything. And they had nothing in common with people in other circles. And in my head, it's like there probably is a scientific way to trace all of this. And maybe science does determine like, you know, who's rich, who's poor, who has a high IQ, who has low IQ. But like, I have no, like, I don't, I'd rather just like, not think about it and just be agnostic about it and and and, and <laughs> yeah. if, the, if the end product is still like universal health care and full employment as the end goal then like 
I think I'm fine with that, but I don't, I don't know exactly yeah. what Hardin's case is. You don't need yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what Hardin's case is for why there's like a value added to, to, to adding all the genetic stuff in there. Well, I think that should, I don't, okay. So that's the, that's the other central question, right? Which I think we should ask, which is like, do you think there's, do you think that, that people should stop these types of, like, I don't think, I don't think anyone thinks that there should be like a national ban on this type of research, right? But there are a lot of people who don't look into these questions on purpose, right? Including David Reich, who said that I am fully uninterested in the question of how intelligence um, manifests itself through generations across these groups that I've outlined, right? And that I am not going to do it, right? But that doesn't really matter because the people are take already in China, for example, are already taking David Reich's research and doing the intelligence studies themselves, mm-hmm. right? And that at some point will come out. And someone like Steve Saylor will tweet about it 600 times, yeah. you know, and that will be, and then it'll be all over ons. And, you know, it, it, it is like, so that there's two questions here. The first is like, we know this is going to happen with Paige Harden's work, right? Like some small mm-hmm. group of population is going to do this and will it become influential or not now? Um, you know, or is it just a small amount, uh, small number of racist cranks who are just going to do this about anything? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the first question. What do you think? Um, is the question, so wait, you're saying that, like, is it it, like, are people overstating the potential harm that this can do? You know, like if they're saying that, um, racists are going to use this to prove their racism, it's like, well, okay. Like if small percentage of racists are using this and they stay exactly the same amount of racist, right? Like then, right. Like, is that, is that. And I, I don't. I don't think we should ban this work, right? If that's the question, like this is okay, too much. Right. This is like a Pandora's yeah. box. We shouldn't open it. It's like this is already happening, yeah. and I think, you know, like yeah. I, I do believe, like research is research on this is totally legitimate. You know, um, I think it's when you make those leaps, you know, to like intelligence and 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 racial groups, then yeah, if that if that gains momentum, I think there should definitely be a counter movement um, by people who yeah. take apart the argument um, if if it's you know if it's truly wrong. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I have too much faith in academia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone discount, you know, everyone just, I will say that like, I do think those guys have a lot more influence in Republican politics than one might think. Right. Like the Charles like, Murray uh, types. Not even Charles Murray, but like, you know, Steve Saylor and, uh, Unz and, I don't know who these know, people are. V dare and all those sites that are sort of the alt right. Uh-huh. You know, like that's what Stephen Miller, for example, reads, right? That's where he gets his information. Are they scientists? Well, they talk in a very science way, right? Uh Because, and that's how they sort of have this veneer of rationality. I see. But they're just pundits, essentially. Which is undercut by like deep racism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they're doing sort of the charade of of science talk, right? And that's where all this stuff inevitably ends up, right? Mm -hmm. Like all this sort of, like the Reich work, for example, is huge in that world. Despite wow. the fact that Reich wrote, writes an op-ed saying, don't do it. Of course, yeah. you know, of course they yeah. were going to do it, you know? So I don't know. I think that's what Darity is afraid of too. And so then I was just like, well, what can we do? Like, I agree with Andy. Like, you know, it seems like you can't ban this stuff, you yeah. know? Like you can create social incentives to not pursue it, which I think is what people are doing now, right? Like that's sort of like what, that's what, that's, that's what, what Gideon Darity I think is doing. exploring, <laughs> right? stigmatization. Right. Um, but I don't think you can stop it. You can ask universities to not fund it, but I don't know if that's particularly a great idea either, right? Like, Tammy, like, as the, what, what would you do or what do you think is a good idea for it? 
I was going to ask you a question, Jay, but yeah, I, I, well, I guess I don't think it should be defunded or, yeah, I mean, I believe in free speech and free academic pursuit also, but I guess a question it raises for me is, so Hardin, Hardin is basically saying in the article and in her work, the right wing owns DNA right now. Right. They own all this genetic talk and research and like rhetoric and like the left needs to get in on this game before it goes in a terrible direction. And I guess like Jay, when you said, when you say that you sympathize with certain of Darity's like representations in the emails in the article, like why is that? Is that because like you don't think it's possible for the left to get in on this game? Right. My question to my question to Paige Harden would be, Okay, great. We as a left, let's get in on this genetics thing. How? Yeah. yeah. You know, because like you're not, but you just by saying, like it's like this type of thing that, that okay. I think a lot of centrist pundits do where they just say like the left is afraid to talk about this. And it's just like, I agree that the left doesn't <laughs> want to talk about a lot of things that are very uncomfortable for the left to talk mm-hmm. about that might be riddled with certain types of contradictions that they don't want to that they don't want to unearth, right? Mm-hmm. And that there are facts that probably cut against a lot of this stuff, right? Like, I agree with all of that, right? Like, part of sort of believing in a progressive world, which I still think is the right thing to do, does take a lot of, like, it's a leap of faith in a lot of ways, right? And that, yeah. that anybody can sit back and just be like, Mr. Hyper-rational and just li- read off a list of facts. And then a lot of things do kind of like start to look worse for the wear, not quite fall apart. Okay, so let's talk about Patreon. Right. Just like, all right, yeah, okay, maybe we can't talk about this stuff. You know, maybe we should. Okay, then tell me how. Yeah, yeah. you know, and that's a, that's the a part that I don't quite right. see. Yeah, right. Like, I don't see what that means. Like, okay, it's catastrophic if we don't talk about it. How should we talk about it? You know, um, like, what is the prescription yeah. now? Yeah. That might all. I think a lot of that is in the book that she is, you know, coming out with. I think mm-hmm. in a few days, which is called the genetic yeah. lottery. But like. Um, Socially engineering based on genes uh, for the left is not like, I don't. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> right? so up. Right. Like, yeah. what are we talking about yeah, here? You know, like, um, like what sort of right. world are we inhabiting? And like, how is that world not going to ultimately turn out to be like a winner's win type of thing? And losers, yeah. you're a loser totally. from like the time Seriously. that you get like that you're like a or let's get rid of the losers, right? Which is the right, whole right, right. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like the losers are like, oh well, you know, we took like you're at like 14 weeks or something like that, right? And like we can already tell you're gonna be a loser. Right? Right, you're gonna be yeah. dumb and short. And like, you know, <laughs> like I don't know. I don't why that doesn't why seem like a particularly short? good progressive goal for me, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So that's a part where I find myself frustrated by yeah. and where I where I'm much more sympathetic yeah. towards Derek. The, per- the person? No, most like unless you can identify what the left is, then it's just gonna be yeah. right. The right. person I found interesting was her advisor at Virginia, Turkheimer, um, who yeah, Turkheimer. is, you know, obviously teaches this stuff and taught her or you know advise her dissertation and his position is always like yeah we can study genetics but in the end it doesn't matter uh in terms like he doesn't believe in the causality the leap from like what's in your genes to like your outcomes in life and i was curious about i mean i guess that lets you know like the whole the whole discipline is not in hard does not necessarily wind up where Harden is you know like there are a lot of people who study this stuff Mm -hmm. just for the sake of like science's sake um, without the policy prescriptions and i'd be curious you know he says in the article that he reads it he thinks he reads her book he thinks it's brilliant in a lot of ways though he disagrees with it and i'll be curious i mean for me it would be like what the left should do 
is not run away from science, but have scientifically rigorous um, engagements with eugenic, uh, you, you know, like right-leaning eugenic discourse, um, rather than like Leslie, like SJ was kind of like mocking, like getting in on the game of, of eugenic social programming. <laughs> yeah. um, like I think that's the criticism. Like if Darity. If Darity's going to like throw up his hands and say like you can't touch that stuff because it automatically leads to eugenics, well, the criticism would be like, yeah, yeah. but you know, this is stuff. Heritability and genetics are real; they should be studied, and we should also come up with like a robust scientific critique of, of like a Charles Murray, rather than just say like, you know, a priori, I disagree with Charles Murray, um, which is you know fair for like, right? Which is a fair position, right? But if 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 you want to like kind of take <laughs> it on and dismantle it and so on, I, I think that's the criticism of the left. I would say, which is like. A sort of distrust of science and mathy, mathy things um, at times, and um, uh, and hard sciences because they because it's a lot easier to just kind of critique science and critique critique that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Tammy, um, last thoughts on this? Yeah, I guess so. So I think so. I'll just return to what I think like Hardin's argument is, which is okay. Yes, people believe in universal certain percent of the population right now believes in universal goods, but probably a lot of people in our population believe in meritocracy and that it functions quite well. And that as long as, um, you know, whatever, we give people opportunities and stuff like they'll rise to their potential, blah, blah, blah. And then she's going to say, if we have a more robust understanding of our genes, then we can, um, we can say that we will always need universal programs because even if we accept that, you know, people, um, you know, are going to flourish in these particular ways, like some people are going to fall behind and we need to like support them. Right. And so I think that's what she's trying to get at in the book. Again, I like agree with you, Andy, that I don't quite see that as like a necessary addition if you actually are already committed to like universal goods. Yeah. Um, Maybe it would lead to other kinds of support for people who are truly in need, which like is good. Yeah. I mean, we sort of already have that in like a disabilities infrastructure, for instance, if that were properly deployed. So I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I like I think I came away from Gideon's piece like very confused, but like in in you know, I think he raises a lot of interesting questions that are useful for us. It's a it's a condescending I argument. Don't know where to go. It's a condescending argument I in know. a way, right? To say that like these people are genetically unable to match what everyone else is, so we should like watch out for them. That if you kind of replace these people with like a racial group, that is that is like the US government stance towards um, black and indigenous people in the past, right? Which is like, we have to protect them for their sake Certainly, because yeah. they're like, they're children, they're, they're, they're childlike and they're not full paternal. Right, they're, they're not fully yeah, realized right. humans and so on. And it's hard not to like, even if she's well-intentioned, you know, like the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know, like that's, you can, you can, <laughs> you can see, you can see, you could see how like, even this, this just the structure of the argument could just be easily flipped. Um, I don't know. I, I am curious. And it, I am curious to see what 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 how the book actually looks in the end because I think this article was yeah. provocative, but um, left with me left me with questions. Yeah. Are there a lot? Is there a lot of intelligence studies done in China? It seems like there is, right? I don't know. Oh, is is that mentioned yeah. in the article? Um, no, but it's just something I noticed. How do they break it down if it's 95 percent Han Chinese? Well, I don't know. I I think that they're maybe they're just trying to prove that they're the smartest, but I I, I don't know. I just think it's part of their intellectual inquiry. Well, know? there's the in Korea, it's not really. I don't think right. Like, is there that much intelligence study done? Like, I, I'm trying to figure out why. The only reason I'm asking is because I am trying to figure out if the United States is an unusually 
uh, because of the, its diversity or mm-hmm. whatever, I see. is a country that is unusually interested in intelligence outcomes. And mm-hmm. because, you know, I think that the big, the you know, a lot of this does have its, it does have its foundings in eugenic studies, yeah. right? Which did were in yeah. America in the in that period that we were talking about. And it's just like, I don't know. It just seems like st- every time I read studies about this sort of stuff, I always sort of like, like it just seems such like a bizarre way to think about things, right? Really that does. intelligence is yeah. real, you know, and that like G is real and that like reading comprehension is like a real, is going, it is the one thing that leads to like G that, that reflects an IQ that leads to different outcomes in life and stuff like that. I'm just like, I don't like, I don't know. I know. It seems awful. Yeah. Right. Well, we're talking about intelligence studies as distinct from like test scores. Like this is like putting people in the laboratory and testing their intelligence as opposed to like how do students do well? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's sort of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Being so reductive, I guess, about, you know, about. I would assume. Who does well or, you know. I mean, I think a lot of this stuff, historically, a lot of the eugenics, I, I would frame it as like a response to like a, a hyper competitive market economy and people, market society and people trying to figure out or rationalize. Yes. Right. That's where I was getting. Those yeah, differences. Go ahead. I don't mean. No, just like that. That's what you like. It used to be. We used to have these very clear hierarchies in terms of like, I'm a king, you're a noble, you're a peasant, you know, and then when those get undermined with capitalism people it's a still a very hierarchical very competitive society and people have to kind of make sense of that and so that's how race and eugenics i think begins to have an appeal um around the late 19th early 20th century and uh you know i'm kind of on that opposite the other extreme end of like being a total constructivist and being like anyone can be anybody even though i know that's not true right but um that's my general outlook in life (laughs) you know I mean, often. But isn't yeah, it, and I mean, it's, it's this... the only outlook that one can have, I think, morally, right? Anyway, I think anyway. that's right. And Tur- and as you were saying, like Tur- Turkheimer also is basically saying that that it's all nurture. Yeah, which is at the end of the day, you know, I don't know. Right, but, but what Paige Harden would say, and what some of her defenders would say, is that you don't really believe that it's all right. nurture, right? Which is, you know, okay, you got me, you know. <laughs> Like, but I don't think that on the individual that's level, stu- yeah, yeah, on the individual that's, level, that's I don't, I don't think that there. you have to then jump right. towards like race, <laughs> yeah. you know, right, right. Now the problem is that many people do jump to race as real, right, and that is like a particularly American affliction, I think, and maybe parts of Europe as well. Mm, Asians but, definitely have it too. Um, My own class has some outrageous right. things. <laughs> okay, fine. Then it's a human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know which does Buffett the general argument that like, look, if this is always going to be the outcome, then we should talk about whether or not we should, you know, why are you doing this? If you know, this is going to be the outcome. If you know it so much that this is going to be the outcome that you basically say, this should not be the outcome, but I know it's going to be the outcome, but please this time don't make it the outcome. Then, you know, maybe you should think a little bit, maybe there are some thoughts about that, but I don't know. I feel very conflicted about this stuff. I don't have any hot takes about it. I just feel like, uh, that um, it's just going to keep happening and then yeah. um, people are going to draw conclusions from it. I guess I just don't see the case how, you know, if, if there's a plan on how we could use it on the left, then I would be very open to hearing that, but I just don't hear it. You know, I just hear mm-hmm. you're afraid to talk about it. You know, I, mean, I think, um, you know, there's been like this upsurge of like leftist economists in the last 10 years or so, like Piketty from Tom, Tom, Tom Piketty most famously. And I feel like that's good. 
because you have someone who's good with numbers, who's making arguments on the left. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas typically, this might be a stereotype. Let's say like the the 2000s left was like, like numbers and science are the problem and they're icky and gross. Right. So, you know, I think... <laughs> What would be good is like scientists who are take, using really good genetic research that undermine racial car- arguments. Um, I think that's the way the left should approach it. But, you know, I also don't know. Like, I don't, I'm not asking them to like. Yeah, it's just unclear. And what. I'm not asking yeah, them to cut think... the data. <laughs> do, do science, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you know, like the goal yeah, should not be like right? a better socially just eugenics program. Right. I also think people kind of want to believe in race. Yeah, right? for sure. Regardless of where they fall in the po- progressive st- scale or the political scale. And I think that's when you've been trained your entire life. to. And this is why I think the Barbara Fields work and Karen Fields work is so important, where it's just like they really sort of disentangle all the ways in which we've been taught that race is real, yeah. you know? And so when you've been taught your entire life that race is real and fully determinative of every single outcome that a person can have then genetic research is always going to fit within that framework you know yeah. and um i don't know how to prevent that i mean that Reich example you were mentioning earlier jay that, that's just like tracing when humans traveled thousands of years ago right like that stuff is totally interesting and i think yeah. i'm fine with that i don't think there's anything racist about that you know um well okay then how would you feel <laughs> then if basically he says that human beings if you look at their ancient dna are split into different groups, yeah. right? He won't use the term race, right, right, but right. groups. But these groups more or less correlate with how we think about race with a few small Right, and Murray started using right? groups too, right? To, vote, to stop using right, the word right. race. So Charles Murray now says yeah. groups instead of races, yeah. right? But he, and he uses them interchangeably. But the problem with that... That's how he gets around Yeah, it. I mean, I mean, I have to actually look at it. The problem with that, of course, is that it like, presumes people have stayed in place the last several thousand years when we know, like, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to like start talking out of my ass. I think tracing the history of this stuff is totally fine. I think yeah. Once you start reifying it into like fixed natural categories, then it gets dangerous. Um, right. Well, it also seems like it's it's oriented to the like it's based on whatever the objective of the research is that makes it suspect or not. So, I mean, to your students' point in response to the fields' work about yeah. well, what about sickle cell anemia or something yeah. like that? I feel like that is like a reasonable, you know, a reasonable left scientist is very interested in this question of like, okay, sickle cell anemia does appear among certain black populations. And because of racism, also, it's like a super underfunded, you know, disease, like we know that this is true. And part of behavioral genetics is potentially figuring out how to make sickle cell anemia go away so that people don't have to live in pain, you know, but that because the application of that is to get rid of diseases, whereas the application that we're concerned about that I think like is pricking us in reading Hardin's work is intelligence or social out, you know, social outcomes under capitalism, like yeah, who's going to do yeah. better in jobs and all this. And that gets really at that point just gets very scary and seems to get ripped out of the environment, yeah. you know, which, which is what we're, I think we're attached to also in thinking about like socialism. Yeah. It's like, well, we care about how people are nurtured. Yeah. I mean, it's right. kind of ties into your, your guys' mixed race discussion from two weeks ago. I guess I live in a bubble where I assume everyone is just like mixed race eventually, but I think most of the world, <laughs> like most of the world is not actually like that. Um, Your view of the future is like, remember those things that we, that, that we would get as kids to make us less racist. And they would be like, in fact, 
the most beautiful face is all the racist yeah. faces together. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that's your that's if you like have a like computer a generated future, one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. a it's like <laughs> a Justin face Alba. that's like yeah. super right. It's like a race it's like a very raced face yeah. slowly turning so into funny. Jessica. Yeah. Alba. <laughs> You're like by 2066, oh you know those those slanted eyes will start yeah. to round out I was gonna, a little bit more. You know, I was gonna say also like I think I I don't know total anecdote. I feel like Sinophone speakers are quite into mixed races more than Koreans. Adding on because you guys were saying Koreans are really like racist against like half Koreans and mixed. I feel like it's different in China for some reason. They really like. Is that still true? I will admit that when I say that, I'm basing my 80s, thoughts on yeah. like 20 years ago. But I imagine that <laughs> I imagine it's you know that maybe half white kids, but definitely half black kids. I think are yeah. You know that might that might be a different story. Are, no, I think it's like a whole other. Yeah. I mean, it's just a different yeah. thing. You know, like um, really just pariahs of society in a way that, and at a level of public racism that you know would shock almost any american right that's not a wrong thing to say is it tammy i think that's fair yeah yeah and i think it's yeah i think it's changing just because of the way like the class valence is attached to that but yeah Mm -hmm. like i think it's yeah generally still true i mean it's atrocious you know like and it (laughs) it's shameful and you know everything bad that can be said about it it's like you know i don't mean it in a dismissive way it's like I think it's one of those things where if you're Korean and you learn that and you realize that, then it really changes the way you think about, you know, nationalism or diasporic nationalism, or it should, right? Um, and uh, yeah, um, okay, that was a lively discussion. <laughs> Is there anything else we should talk about this week? It's good to talk to you two again. Yeah, it's I missed been a you while. Guys. It's been a while. Yeah. I'm I am available from now on on Mondays to do this show and I think we're going to keep we're going to have uh we're going to do a mix of guests and the three of us and sometimes the two of us and going forward we're going to figure all this out. We apologize for um us three not being here that much for the last 3 weeks or 4 weeks is that right? Um yeah. you know, we had some scheduling issues, but I think people are kind of in place right tammy are you in mm-hmm. place yeah you, okay um andy's in place Andy's never leaving the state of pennsylvania and he's teaching again i'm teaching yeah um, it's stressful how's that going by the way is it weird yeah. um it's getting better the the place i teach at which everyone knows at this point um has a mask mandate now which it did not so that's that makes me feel better um and there's a vaccine man i mean one thing we could talk about maybe in a different episode is like the crazy variability of these mask and vaccine mandates at universities but maybe that's it's all going to trend in the direction of like pretty it's pretty universal um especially in yeah with biden's right yeah um the weird thing is i mean i don't know it's the same as last year uh, same as last two years like can't see anyone's face um i don't try to tell jokes because i don't i can't tell if anyone's laughing do you have outdoor class (laughs) (laughs) yes they're not laughing because of the masks um no, we have indoor. Uh, I think like out, oh. outdoor was like floated as I think that it was floated as an idea in all these places. But unless you live in like Hawaii, it's like not practicable. Or California, because yeah. yeah. I bike through campus and you know here yeah. in Berkeley, and there the whole quad. I don't know if it's called a quad, but whatever the grassy yeah. areas are just filled with classes That's so and nice. like 
Let, no, yeah. let me tell you something, no? Tammy. I have what? never seen a more miserable group of young people in my life really? than the freshmen and sophomores, juniors, seniors, undergraduates at the University of California right we now. Do. They look so unhappy. Huh. Like there's just like this sense. I, I, it makes me actually, you know, like I am worried for many reasons, obviously, including the fact that I have a child for like what this pandemic is going to do to people, particularly yeah. young people who like basically have my my kid, Andy's kid, both have lived the majority now at this point, like half of their lives yeah. with oh masks on during a pandemic. Right. And like these are very formative years. I don't know what's going to happen if they're going to deal with a certain amount of sort of, exp- you know, like uh, if they're going to carry like the stress that everyone around them feels at all times in some sort of way. But I will say for the kids who are like at Cal, who are like 18, 19, they know, you know, they're old enough to have developed in a way where like they can process this Obviously, I would hope at least for an 18 year old can process what's happening in the world. <laughs> like they look so miserable, yeah. so yeah. miserable, you know? And like, it's just like, you see these kids wearing all, they're all wearing, they all have to wear masks on campus basically. Wait, outside right? though? Oh, yeah, masks? they're all in masks oh, on campus. Oh, because I thought your point was they can take off their masks yeah. so they would be no, happier they can't than outdoor masks. That's, that's going too far. I that's see. going too far. That seems silly. If they're vaccinated. Andy's about, Andy's about to post on some anti-vax <laughs> sites here. Just like, do you know what's happening <laughs> at the at Berserkly, <laughs> California, <laughs> that hippie? Yeah. <laughs> University of Communist Berkeley. Uh, yeah, the University <laughs> of Communist Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Berkeley. Uh, they're wearing masks. Oh, um, yeah. So they have these outdoor class. All the kids are wearing masks. Uh, they can't hear the teacher because yeah. the teacher is yeah. wearing masks. You know, that's ridiculous. And the teacher can't tell who's talking. And so, like, you know, like I under, I don't think that, like, for example, like a freshman chemistry like lecture is yeah, yeah. doing this. But like, you know, a lot of courses are. And man, it just uh, seems so. I was going to say when that's, I was an undergrad, we would um, for fun do a seminar outdoors when the weather was good in New York City. And uh, it was like the worst class every year. It was like nobody. Yeah, could you pay any no, attention? Like squirrel, you, no. you can hear anyone, and then like squirrels are like running oh, by, which really? is like I guess, but nice and bohemian, but certainly not mo- the most like. It's not good for like concentrated discussion. Where would you do it at? Where would you do it at Columbia? Yeah, Columbia has like a one patch. There's like of grass. trees and yeah, it's like <laughs> grassy knolls and the, yeah, soccer oh, fields. The steps. I mean, it was it was always like. It sounds like a nice idea. Then you wasted like ninety minutes, and yeah, right, I you know, hear right, you. right. So every, imagine that. I would all say, yeah, classes. they don't. They don't need to. I mean, I don't think you need to wear a mask if you're outdoors and vaccinated. Yeah. That's kind of crazy to me. Seems messed up. Yeah, because mm. like in, in Montana and in James disagrees. Yeah. We live in different worlds then, because that's like the norm know. here. But outdoors, you know? I, yeah, outside I, here. I, I, I was in New York about a month ago and I saw people wearing masks outdoors and that was coming from Philly. That was a huge culture shock because nobody, nobody in Philly wears masks outdoors. So many people here wear masks. It's not, it's not necessary. Okay. I don't know. Well, you, I don't know. Write a, write a letter. You know, it will right right into Berkeley side. And be like, listen, idiot. Now, if you're maybe if you're not vaccinated in Berkeley, <laughs> hey, dum dums. You know, I I heard through the grapevine yeah. that you're still wearing masks outdoors. You know, how about you knock it off and stop this COVID theater? <laughs> All right, all right. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you for listening to our show. I was really just, I don't know why, but I was basically just stringing along so we would get to an hour and 30 minutes. I have no idea why. I was just like, I think our show is usually an hour and 30 minutes long. So I just put that in the end. We'll just keep it because, you know, it doesn't matter. Thank you for listening to our show. You can support us at goodbye.substat.com. You will have an option there to subscribe for $5 a month. You will get access to our Discord server, which is still kicking along with lively conversations about... Oh, I don't know. We're doing. I guess we're doing NBA fantasy league. Is that right? <laughs> That's Andy? the news on the Discord. <laughs> right. Shout out to Dan. And, uh, what are other conversations that are going on there right now? Um, there's always conversations about food, restaurants, always labor politics, right? Um, a lot of conversations about the environment that are going on. I don't know. We have like almost seven hundred. I think we have what six, seven hundred people on there, right? And uh, a lot of them talk all day to each other, which is wonderful. And uh, you can also do that at patreon.com slash ttsgpod. If you'd like to email us, please email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Um, and uh, you can reach us on Twitter at, at ttsgpod and you can DM us or DMs are open. Okay, Andy and Tammy, until next week, good to talk to you. Bye, guys. Okay, bye. Sogno all'orizzonte manca le pa